minimalists. <laughs> Hello, simpletons. We're here with Erwin Raphael McManus. <laughs> and you've got a new book out, Erwin. It's called, well, you've got a new podcast series. It started with, with this called mm-hmm. The Genius Of. I do. Yep. And the book is called The Genius of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is written from a perspective where you're writing about a man. In fact, the subtitle of the book is called The Man Who Changed Everything. Mm. And I think what's so fascinating about this, and for people who have an allergy to anything religious, this isn't a spiritual, well, it's not a religious text, but it is a study into what goes into genius. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, some of it for me was during quarantine. I was in my back house having a conversation with myself, which, you know, I'm sure you guys do. That's why I'm never lonely. And and I don't know if you ever have these conflicting voices, but you're not sure which one is you. Yeah. And so one voice in my head um, said to me, isn't it insane that your whole life revolves around a person who lived 2,000 years ago? That just thought just Mm. came like crashing through my head. Mm. And I thought, yeah, it is pretty crazy. I I mean, it just seems absurd to me, mm-hmm. even though I'm a person who believes deeply in Jesus. It, I just had this overwhelming thought, how odd, how strange, it's, it's absurd. And then the other part of me said, what about if he isn't God? Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, I, I could see, I mean, objectively, you know, that that is a possibility. But then I thought, what I can't deny is that I've been changed mm-hmm. by um, the idea of Jesus, if Jesus was a real person. So then I had this thought, wow. So if Jesus isn't really who he said he was, mm-hmm. so if I haven't been changed by Jesus being God, I've been changed by the idea of Jesus. Mm. And I had this like overwhelming moment thinking that is the most brilliant idea in human history then. Mm. And there's a genius to it. So I began writing the book, uh, putting aside any belief I have. Uh, and and I, I pushed aside all the, you know, my, my beliefs in the divinity of Jesus and just put it all in the category of mythology. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, now let's, let's ask the question, is Jesus a genius? Does he qualify as one? And then if he does, what is his genius? Mm-hmm. So I've been studying human genius for probably 40 years, and I have never seen a single list that has Jesus on the list, and that's part of what intrigued me too. Isn't that fascinating? Because you'll yeah. see you, uh, I mean, all kinds of creators and creatives and, and, and mystics and, and, and different people, but not, not seeing Jesus on that list is, yeah, is fascinating. Probably the most iconic genius is Leonardo da Vinci. And when I actually started Mosaic 30 years ago, uh, Da Vinci and Japanese uh, samurai culture were the two cultures that I actually brought in to uh, inform the artistic essence of what I created mm-hmm. through Mosaic. And so I've always been a huge uh, admirer of Da Vinci and tried to take on a lot of his patterns when I was young and, mm-hmm. and worked at being ambidextrous because of Da Vinci and all these different things. Oh, wow. And, um, and you know, Picasso's always on the list and um, Einstein's always on the list and uh, there, there are certain people that always make the list of geniuses, but then some lists would bring people like um, Gandhi or, or um, Muhammad was even on, on a few lists, and uh, obviously Buddha and mm-hmm. uh, Mandala would be on lists. I thought, well, even some religious people have been on lists, but never Jesus. Yeah. And so I, I began writing the book first, just asking the question, what is the phenomenon of human genius? And, and I look back all the way to when I was 10 years old, when I began actually asking the questions about human Jesus, genius, and I didn't know anything about Jesus, I didn't really know anything about God, but I ended up in a psychiatric chair when I was 12, and I uh, was a straight D student that was flunking out of school. Uh, I was told I was retarded. Mm. And so that became an important issue to me. You know, do, do I have intellectual limitations that are, in a sense, grossly unfair? Mm. And, um, and then they started giving me all these IQ tests, and, 
and different assessments. And for some reason, there's some places where um, I excelled in other places where I seemed to be completely uh, at a deficit. And, and that, for me, became a really important question. So when I went to college and started studying philosophy and psychology at University of North Carolina, I started studying abnormal behavior. Mm. And even studying sociopathic behavior, you know, narcissistic behavior, abnormal psycholo- you know, psychological patterns, and, and genius is one of them. Mm. And, and during that time, took every assessment that, was, that existed. And, and so I became a guinea pig a lot of times. Uh, and been working with three neuroscience clinics for the last you know, 20 years. And so some of that was just all the science informing the question, what is genius? Is genius transferable? And what was really frustrating mm. is that no matter how much you study genius, it doesn't seem to be transferable. You could spend your life with, with Mozart and never become a composer and spend your life with Bobby Fischer and become a master chess player. You spend your life with you know, Picasso and never become a painter. Mm. And so you know, what's the point of studying genius if it's not transferable, right? You mm. know? And, yeah. and this is what really struck me about Jesus, that whatever the genius of Jesus is, it appears to be transferable because what he taught has affected people for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And, there's a, and there's, a, there's a translation in the way a person lives their life. Mm. And, and what really struck me was, for genius to be identified, there has to be a canvas. So whether it's art or music or science or physics or whatever it may be, or mm-hmm. whether it's a chessboard and, or, or a rock that you sculpt. Mm. And, and the reason it's so easy to overlook the genius of Jesus is that the canvas of his genius is the human spirit. Mm. And that what Jesus really had a genius for was teaching us how to become truly and fully human. Mm. And, and that, what for me, became the undeniable reality is that um, 2,000 years later, the canvas of my life has been changed by this genius. And it has redirected my life to want to live for the good and the beautiful and the true. Mm-hmm. And that compelled me to start writing this book because I think that genius is desperately needed in the world today. Mm-hmm. You know, because we always think about you know, Einstein being a genius or Hawking's being a genius, but you, know, you will not spend your life searching for math. Right, you know, but you will spend your life searching for love, mm. and you know, you you look at a lot of the historic geniuses, and there's a madness to them. In fact, my wife was reading uh, Jobs, you know, the book on Steve Jobs, and yeah. one day she said to me, "You need to read this book," and I said, "Why?" And she goes, "So you can know what it's like to be inside the mind of a genius." <laughs> and, You're like, "Ouch!" And I said, "How do you know? I don't already know what it's like to be inside the mind of a genius." And mm. she said, "That's why you need to read this book." And I said, "It's interesting. You're drawn to the life of a sociopath, mm. and yes. and yeah. uh, but you're saying you're drawn to the life of a genius." Yeah. And so then the question became for me: Why is it that we excuse inhumane behavior? in people that we identify genius in. Mm. And is there a genius that makes us more fully human rather than makes us less fully human? Yeah, I I think what's fascinating about that is there's a what we call genius level IQ, but that doesn't always manifest in genius. In fact, I think if you you go down the skid row, you'll probably see more genius level IQs, you know, people with an IQ of 140 or higher Mm -hmm. there than you would in the average population. And, and it manifests differently there, right? Yeah. And in fact, you even talk about it in the book a, bit, a little bit about how it, it can manifest in greatness, but also in a sort of psychosis. Now, mm-hmm. now Steve Jobs is sort of the example of, of both, where he, he was narrowly great in terms of aesthetics and design, but he was also a tyrant, and he, he mistreated a lot of people. He was a total jerk. Mm-hmm. And, and so what about... 
what about you know being having the potential for genius? It sounds to me like what you're saying is that every human being, in a way, has a potential for genius. Yeah, I I, I want to be I guess clear on this because it, it's a both and kind of moment. Mm. Um, you know, when I go to Nike and I see the sign on the wall that says, "If you have a body, you're an athlete." I think to myself, I have a body. <laughs> I don't know if I'm still an athlete. But, uh, and, and I go, yes, and true. It's a both-and kind of moment. Yeah. If you have a body, you can become more athletic. Yes. But you're not going to become an Olympian. Right. Some people can become Olympians. Yeah. And so sometimes that kind of language is distorted in our minds. Oh, if I have a body, I can become an Olympian. Mm. The answer is no. There are some people who have a capacity to do more than all of us. Mm-hmm. And then I was in this gym in Miami because, you know, I'm still trying to, you know, stay healthy. And, uh, and it said, if it's humanly possible, I can do it. Mm. And, I, and I'm, I'm trying to work out, barely able to do anything anymore. And I thought, nah, if it's humanly <laughs> possible, a human can do it. <laughs> but not necessarily me. Yeah. And, and I would say the same thing with genius. There are people who have a unique expression of the phenomenon of genius. Mm-hmm. And they're like an Olympian. And they're different than, than, let's say, the rest of us. But it doesn't mean there isn't the uniqueness of genius inside of all of us. Yeah. And, and that, to me, is really important. Uh, almost 30 years ago, when I started saying that every human being is an artist, I, I was told that that was actually absurd. In fact, I was in this debate in New York, and people were really concerned. when I was saying every human being should, is actually a creative. And someone got upset saying, if you want everyone to be a creative, who's going to do the work? And, and I said, this what? is the same language they used during slavery. Mm. That when, if everyone's going to be free, who's going to do the work? Mm. And, and, and I said, you know, the idea that everyone being creative is, um, is an affront on our capacity to function as a society tells us the master society's in. Yeah. And in the same yeah. way, if we have this concept that everyone is a genius, what would it do? to the way we treated each other and the way we actually even raised our children. I was in a conversation with a guy named Walter. He has the highest um, recorded IQ in the world. The, the TV show Scorpion was designed, uh, created around him. Okay. And we were sitting next to each other just a few weeks ago, and he said, I disagree with you. I want you to know I disagree with half of everything you've said. Mm. He goes, in fact, I, I, can, I can argue the facts against you. Mm. Okay. And, and, I, and, I, and I realize that this is a real affront to Walter because he is a recorded genius uh, so the idea that there's genius under everyone would not make everyone else unique it would make him ordinary mm. but at the same time i do have the facts against me he's right yeah see the facts are never for the future the facts are always for the past see yeah. i don't have the facts um for me in this book i have the future for me mm. and let me give you an example there's a guy named george land 1968 who worked for nasa he was given the task of identifying geniuses so they could work uh, and really one of the most complex environments in the world. Mm-hmm. So he created this assessment that would measure genius, and they gave it to five-year-olds. 98% of five-year-olds tested as geniuses. They did a longitudinal study of those same children. Five years later, only 30% of them tested as genius. They did another longitudinal study five years after that when they were 15, and only 12% of them measured as geniuses. And then they did a study, and I can't remember if it was 28,000 uh, people, but it was average age 31, and only 2% of adults measured as geniuses. Wow. And so it seems that the real question is not, is there a genius inside of everyone? But the real question is, what have we created that actually eliminates the genius in every person? Yeah. yeah. Or covers it up in some yeah. way, strangles it. I mean, it's the same thing when we talk about, when we talk about minimalism with respect to the material possessions. 
it, it we were always working as adults, it seems, to perfect ourselves. Yeah. Mm. You just had a, a, your first granddaughter. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And no, no one's trying to perfect Juno, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, how do we make her better? How do we yeah. improve her, right? Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. It's like you recognize this this perfect human, and then we become imperfected by society, by culture, by other in external influences, right? And we're told that we're improving, but quite often we're just simply covering up the sort of the nature of what it means to be human. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at children, which is a great example, uh, both of you probably, uh, well, you probably speak English, but you probably don't speak another language. Well, no, neither yeah. one of us no. do. Ryan yeah. speaks a little bit of... Uh, I can ask where the bathroom is in Spanish and, <laughs> and for a beer. That's important. And, and how much something costs. Yeah, well, but yeah. <laughs> if you know how to ask for a beer, you yeah. better know how to ask for a bathroom. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, uh, and so when I talk to most Americans, I ask them, Do you, um, are you good at languages? Most Americans would say no. Mm. And, uh, but the truth is you learned English when you were one year, one year old. Mm-hmm. You were two years old and you learned English. You learned English when you were an infant. Mm. Right? You learned one of the most difficult languages in the world. Mm. So when you were two, you were a linguistic savant. Now you may not be mm-hmm. because you taught your brain that you didn't need that aspect of your genius. Mm-hmm. Uh. And so Spanish was my first language. I came to the States. I learned English right away. And by the way, English was really easy. And Spanish was really easy. You know mm. why? Because I was less than five years old. Because when you're five, you're a linguistic savant. Mm. And so my brain um, was told languages matter, that there's more than one language, and that I have the capacity to learn different languages. Mm. And so by the time you're 12 years old, your brain has rigidified it. It already knows what you need to survive. Mm. And so what, how we raise children from birth to 12 actually diminishes their genius. It teaches them to conform. It teaches them to move towards standardization. It teaches them to know the answer in the blank rather than to dream, to imagine, and to create. And, and a huge part of what I want to do is I want to rekindle the genius inside of every human being. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I want to be realistic and go, I know that there's some things that are lost because I didn't nurture, the, I, they were not nurtured when I was an infant or when I was young and inside mm-hmm. of you. But I think there's so much that can be regained. Yes. Oh, that's and awesome. I think that a lot of the latent despair in people is the genius within them that has never been actualized. Mm. Well, mm. We do this little segment on the podcast called More About Less, where we read something as a jump off point. I got a couple pages marked in the book here. I thought we would start by talking about the four things that make a genius a genius. And so this is from page uh, 16 of The Genius of Jesus. If I were to make a short list of what marks a genius, I would say, number one, they are heretical. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, they are original. Number three, they are transformative in their field. And number four, they are extremist. I'd probably add a fifth thing in here that resonates with me, although it may fall under one of these, but there's always this sense of wonder or awe Mm. that I see in in genius. But maybe we could go through these four or five things real quick. What do you mean by heretical? Yeah, I think uh, heretics are incessantly curious, Mm. and they don't accept the answers that have been established or given to them. Mm. And uh, and I think it's true in every field. Picasso is a, a heretic in art. Uh, what he did seemed wrong. Mm, yes. And mm-hmm. until... At the uh, time. At the time, yeah. Even uh, Michelangelo, what he did changed art forever. And, you know, when you, uh, Bobby Fischer was a, a heretic in chess. In fact, he was considered um, really um, insolent and, and rude and, and uh, changing the behavior patterns of a chess player, not just on the board, but in the way he played against his opponents. And mm. uh, 
uh, you know, and the thing about geniuses oftentimes is that they make greatness look average. Uh, and, and that's why they're so often so despised and they're considered heretical because that you, you can't move that note that way. You can't, you can't organize that chord that way. You, 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 you can't accept that structure. How do you, you know, who creates 12 tonal music or who, you know, who creates Gregorian chant and, you, you know, and who mm. decides this is the way music is going to sound now? Wow. You know, and uh, yeah. and so that's why there's more genius in jazz than there is in rock. I'm just going to say that, <laughs> you know. Sure. And because so much of rock is based around three chords. Uh-huh. And, then you, and then you apply your genius to that. With jazz, it's, it's a violation of the rules. It's, it, you know, you, you have to contradict the expected mm-hmm. in jazz. And so I, I think genius is when you have the courage to play jazz rather than simply pop. Wow. Hmm. And, and what's fascinating about that is there is, you mentioned this sort of effortlessness. It's not that they're not, it doesn't require effort. It's that it looks effortless. When you see a great jazz musician or rock musician or basketball player, it doesn't, they drop 60 points and all of a sudden, and it looks like it, they just rolled out of bed and, and got right. in here and did and it. It was a bad shot until Steph Curry took it. Ah, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah the logo the shot. Yeah, it, and yeah. it changed the game. And even if you think of Copernicus, you know, and the, I mean, the poor guy, you know, making observations about the, the solar system and, and daring to say that the Earth isn't the center of the universe. <laughs> How know? dare he? <laughs> yeah, you know. And uh, I mean, they wanted to set him on fire and kill him because uh, he was contradicting the view of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so it, now we accept it. Okay, that you know the Earth is round, not flat. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people, not everyone. I just met a flat <laughs> Earther just a month ago, oh, and, and they were uh, serious. Absolutely. Oh wow. serious. Yeah, yeah. And and I started to laugh, and I and I didn't mean to. Uh-huh. And he got really upset that I laughed yeah. and, and I couldn't help myself. But, um, but, and, but most of the time we accept the world is round or early spherical, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and we understand that the earth revolves around the sun. Mm-hmm. But that was heresy. We didn't right? realize that science, the, the idea that matter and energy are the same thing, it, it, it was heresy. I mean, every, every logical, reasonable person knows that matter is not the same as energy, that, that this mm. table is not the same as that light. But now we accept that matter and energy are the same thing, uh-huh. just moving at different speeds. And, and so it seems that with every act of genius, it's heretical until it's not. Yes. And I remember one time I was doing the TV show with this really famous um, Christian leader. And before we went on air, I said, um, today's heresy is tomorrow's orthodoxy. And he mm-hmm. looked at me really distressed before I wanted to show. Mm. And he said, I hope not. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, wow. See, and I, I, I hope so. Yeah. See, the idea that we already know everything that's to be known is not just to me, uh, you're unrealistic. It's sad. Yeah. See, I, I, I love the fact there's so many things that are still unknown and unknowable. I love the fact that there are mysteries that are going to change my view of reality completely. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that genius actually has that heretical sense that, um, that the truth is still out there waiting for us. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we're not living in truth. We're living in all the truth we understand. Yeah. Yeah. And, but we're always moving toward truth. Yeah. And, mm. um, yeah, and I think some of it is we have to fight our, our longing to conform and to belong. Uh, I was just mm. on a TV show last week and someone um, said, I met you 16 years ago and and I still remember, and they said, we had, there was a panel, seven people, you were in the panel, I was on the panel, and, 
And the six of us all answered the question the same way, and this, out of the same box, she said. And then when you answered, it came out of a different box every single time. And I, I called my wife and I said, I'm really sad. And she goes, why? And I said, because I wanted to belong so badly. Oh. And so oftentimes I, I would do everything I could to try to jump into their box. And, you know, and when people would ask me, hey, what, what, what practices do you do to think differently? And I would say, no, you understand. I've spent my whole life trying to think the same. Mm. Because no one, I don't think anyone really wants to be heretic. Right. right. Yeah. I just think that eventually the truth becomes so compelling that you have to tell people what you see. Yeah. You have to see the world a new way. Yeah. It, it mm. seems that you have no other choice and all of a sudden you would be inauthentic or disingenuous if you continued to conform. Yeah, because mm. first you lie to yourself. That's right. Before you lie to the world. Oh. 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 Tweet that. I'm so happy that you, uh, in the book, I saw that, you know, the the genius of, of beauty, right? And so the chapter here is called, this is chapter eight, the genius of the beautiful. I thought I'd read an excerpt from that and we could have a discussion here. I've always wondered, do geniuses ever truly know the full measure of what they've created? Didn't, did Leonardo da Vinci understand that for generations to come, multitudes would stand before the Mona Lisa and gaze into her eyes, lost in her beauty? When Michael Jordan exploded from the free throw line for a dunk no one ever imagined possible, did he, did he have even the slightest clue it would become an iconic moment? For the game of basketball and the symbol of one of the world's most successful sports brands did einstein know that he would forever be identified with e equals mc squared few remember the names of Perig perigino oh boy pinterchio <laughs> dear uh rosalini we were all they were all renaissance artists commissioned to paint the walls of the sistine chapel chapel this is great um years later an artist named michelangelo painted the ceiling mm. why is it that he and he alone is remembered as the genius behind this work of art the irony is that michelangelo did not want this commission he was a sculptor not a painter he did not prefer the brush he would have rather made the statue of David than paint the ceiling, yet he accepted the task and used it to usher in an entirely new approach to art that defined the Renaissance. After Michelangelo, the works of his predecessors and even his contemporaries, save Raphael, yeah, you had to throw your name in there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they became obsolete. Today, the Sistine Chapel is inseparable from the name Michelangelo. Genius always leaves a mark it separates itself without ever having to speak of its difference you may not know how to define it but you know it when you see it what you see is something you have never seen before if you are fortunate it not only changes the way you see the world it changes you i would call that the beauty of genius mm. uh, uh, because if you are changed by something like that even a one, per, one, one degree pivot, five degree pivot, it has radical implications. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's beautiful. Man, I, I will say your book, like it, it gives me, uh, I don't know, it, it makes me think like, oh, maybe I am a genius. <laughs> maybe it's possible for me to, because I certainly don't feel like one. But, uh, but yeah. You know, a better question than maybe I am a genius yeah. is maybe I have a genius. Yeah. The, yeah. the word genius actually comes from the original etymology for the word genie. 
And the ancient Greeks believed that gods actually gave you a gift of genius. Mm. And so it wasn't you were a genius, you had a genius. It had been given to you by the divine mm. as a gift to the world. Mm. And so, you know, because when we think and go, okay, I am a genius, it, it can move us toward an incredible level of narcissism, right? Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. Yeah. And, but, but if I go, okay, I have a genius, I have something unique, something that has been uh, maybe even uh, given to me as a responsibility by God, where I can make the world a better place, I can make the world more beautiful, I can, I can enhance others. And, you know, when you study even some of the great artists like Van Gogh or Monet, um, even Picasso, who, you know, lived a pretty jaded life, mm. They always talked about love being the greatest motivator of all art. And so when people go, well, how do I begin to like express and experience my genius? I go, hey, just start with love. Mm-hmm. You know, and because they all agreed with Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and if you begin to live a life of love, I actually do think you begin moving to an elevated level of genius. And that's why on the, on the chapter of empathy, I, I kind of lay out this argument that empathy is the highest form of intelligence. Mm. And, and that what, we have to realize even like, I mean, I live in the world of faith, right? And I work so much with people trying to figure out faith in a relationship with God. And, and, and I would have some people come to me and go, how do I go deeper? And whenever people say, how do I go deeper? They always meant knowledge. Mm. Like, how can I know more? You know, how, how can I get more information? Yeah, and I'm going, I don't know any arena in life where data makes you deeper. Yeah. Wow. And it's it, it, what makes you deeper is love. What makes you deeper is when you understand the value of human relationships. When, what makes you deeper is when you're no longer confusing experiences and things as having greater value than people. Yeah. And the genius of living a life of love is so extraordinary that you look at someone like Mother Teresa and, and you, I mean, what, what is the practical, tangible change she brought to the world? Yeah. You know, you could be really objective and almost cynical and go, hey, there's still poverty in Calcutta, mm. right? You know, mm-hmm. she, she didn't make a mark. She didn't make a dent, right? Mm-hmm. She didn't cure it. She right. didn't cure it. Yeah. And, and, and yet what she did is she elevated our consciousness to what our lives could be for the good of others. She, she changed our view of what sacrifice and what love and what compassion looks like. And uh, you cannot... Uh, come across a life of Mother Teresa and not be confronted in some way of how do you live a more humane life. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, when you, when you think about the genius of beauty, and it's, it is the closing chapter of the book, and, and, and some of it is because, I mean, I basically grew up, grew up irreligious, but I did have a few experiences in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, pre-Vatican II, Latin masses, everything was in Latin. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I went maybe four or five times before I was 18 years old. And, and because of my family's background from El Salvador, I was confirmed and I went through my first confession and all those sort of things. And, and <clears throat> I always saw Jesus hanging on a cross. Mm. And so that was like the image that stayed with me was this crucifixion. And it was never really explained. It was almost as if we're supposed to know mm-hmm. what it means, right? Right. And, and I mean, the country I'm from is called San Salvador or El Salvador. It means the savior. And I was born in the capital, San Salvador, which means Holy Savior. Mm. The street I grew up was the Calle de San Salvador, which means the street of the Holy Savior. So my address growing up was Jesus' address, right? Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> the street of the Holy Savior and the, and the city of the Holy Savior and the nation of the Savior of the world. Why was an entire nation named after this man that lived 2,000 years ago when he didn't write a single book, didn't create any technology, mm-hmm. uh, didn't give us a greater insight to physics or science or mechanics or technology? I mean, what was it about this person? 
And, and for me, I look back and I realize that, that what struck me was this cross was the pinnacle instrument of tragedy, of suffering. And it became a historic symbol of beauty and love. Yes. Your sacrifice is the greatest expression of love. Mm-hmm. And I, that is the genius of Jesus, is that in, in this compelling moment at the crucifixion, he transforms tragedy into beauty. Mm. I've never met anyone who did not need tragedy in their life transformed to beauty. Mm. Yes. I, I've never known anyone who didn't have pain or suffering or loss or betrayal or or a level of emptiness or loneliness that they weren't desperate to find some way to create a new story out of that. Yes. And, and I think there is genius in, in this culminating moment where history's most tragic moment becomes history's most beautiful moment. Yeah. That's wow. amazing. You said something earlier about empathy. What, what did you say about that again? Empathy is... The highest form of intelligence. Mm, I love that. It's, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, empathy, uh, like there's a whole... Uh, a, a book that it's called the case against empathy. And it talks about how, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want your, you don't want your dentist to feel the pain of your tooth and so forth and so on. But mm-hmm. I do think that when empathy, when appropriate, it is used, it is a very powerful thing. Cause I, I look at like the way the world is right now. And if I had to like, you know, just point out one of the things that we're missing, it is it's compassion, but it's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think the only way that, or one of the only ways you can really truly gain a perspective of someone who lives on the other side of the world is try to be a bit empathetic and, and try to feel what they are feeling. And that might, you know, shift your perspective a little bit because we think we know, like before I went to Laos, I thought I knew what third world country was, mm-hmm. but until I was actually there in it, I mean, it was a completely different, I could feel, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the people's situation there. And it completely changed my attitude towards, um, towards people in general. And it just, you know, kind of raised my awareness in a way. So yeah, I love what you said that empathy is the, the highest, f- is the most intelligent, the highest form of intelligence, highest form of intelligence. Yeah. Erwin and I had a disagreement about this on his podcast. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, yeah. and I think fundamentally we, we're all, we all believe the same thing. Mallory, can we get him some more water mm-hmm. by the way? Um, I, I think that we all, what we're talking about, whether we use the word sympathy or empathy or compassion, mm-hmm. what we are talking about is a deeper understanding of the human experience. Yes. An understanding that where we are isn't where everyone else is. Now, we use these sort of weaponizing words to otherize people, which I think mm-hmm. is really unfortunate. You know, we start to talk about privilege, which let's acknowledge that privilege exists, but when we use it to say, well, I'm going to put this person in a box and now dismiss them, mm-hmm. that's a completely different thing. Yeah. Ryan and I have been having this uh, <laughs> ongoing conversation uh, on the, the podcast um, and uh, about voting recently. Mm-hmm. And I've simply been asking some questions. I, I voted recently. There was, this, there was this whole recall election or whatever, and I, I voted in it. But I asked Ryan the question, hey, is it actually, does it make sense to spend my time voting or is it not the best use? Because quite often, Ryan and I will go deep. Like we'll spend hours. six hours. It's exhausting. Yeah. Oh, which man. judges do I vote for? Yeah, looking up the different, yeah, the different propositions and levies and oh my goodness. And, and what I've realized is there, while most of our audience totally gets it, um, there have been a handful of people who have not had that compassion for these conversations for me and Ryan. And, mm-hmm. and, and they haven't even made the space. And what I love what you do with uh, with your son, Aaron, you have a podcast together called Battle Ready. Yeah. And uh, whenever I get a chance to listen to that, you two 
are able to disagree about things. And it's almost as though it might be something you both agree about privately, but in public, you want to be able to hash out the, the yeah. conversation. You're not even necessarily taking a stand on one side of the thing. You're asking some questions. And I think compassion or empathy or whatever you want to call it, let's get past the, the vocabulary and get to the, the understanding of what this is. What, when Ryan and I are asking these questions, it's not about I'm going to prove my point, I'm proving that I'm right and you're wrong. It's, mm. hey, how do I get a deeper understanding of this? And what was fascinating to me is I started seeing some of these comments like, even asking that question is an, from a, coming from an incredible place of privilege. Mm. I'm like, well, yeah, that's the point. Right. I have an incredible privilege. I mean, I have male privilege, white privilege. I'm 6'2", so I have tall privilege, which yeah. is my favorite. <laughs> right. Um, and I have all these other... I have American privilege. I have middle class <laughs> privilege. My question is, what is the best thing to do with this privilege? Yeah. If I have six hours, is it the best thing to do is vote with that? Or is it, hey, is there another way that I can use whatever resources, whatever mm. privilege Volunteer that I have? Volunteer soup kitchen or something. Right. Yeah. Or, or I I anything. Is there something I can do that serves the greater good? Well, I think we can only start asking those questions if we start having compassion for other people. And if we're spending time with people who make room for that compassion or, or empathy mm -hmm. or sympathy, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Because if we're spending time with people who don't make room for that, that compassion, or if people now, I'm noticing less and less compassion these days. Now, mm. why, why do you think that is? Well, mm. uh, first of all, I just want to say I, I do not think of empathy as an emotion. I think of it as a shared consciousness. Mm. That uh, mm. true empathy is when there's no separation between you and me. Mm. And I do want that surgeon working on me. Wow! When he's working on me, he's working on himself. Oh, and, yes. Um, and and so I, I want to just maybe elevate that just a little bit. You know, mm. and, uh, and and it's funny. I, I don't. I don't even know how to go into the whole conversation of, of privilege, right? You know, because um, once you hit the tipping point, is it, are you already privileged? I'm an immigrant, so I could say I'm not privileged. I'm I'm Latin American. I uh, I, I grew up with massive racism. Uh, the people who funded my wife for her master's program told her she couldn't marry me, or they would defund her, and they did. Mm. Oh my God. And, um, I mean, I stopped my car in Mill Street when I was in high school because of racist remarks that were said toward me. And, and uh, I went up to someone's door and knocked and said, come outside and say that again. Mm. And um, um, so I understand that world. And, um, uh, you know, Spanish was my first language. I, I could lay all the reasons why I was underprivileged. I never mm. knew my real father. I never knew even my identity. Mm. And, um, but I, I, I think a lot of times we... We try to say once you've overcome your those obstacles, now you're privileged, right? You, you know, and I'm going no. Actually, the journey toward, if you want to call it privilege, is what makes you insightful. Mm. Uh, you did not grow up with privilege. You were you grew up poor. Yeah, you, I mean, you know the story. Yeah, I'm going no. It, it, uh, when someone says that to you, what they're they're demeaning the struggle that allowed you to become a complex human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't like that. No, because then right. what you're actually saying is only the people who did not step into the struggle have an opinion worth hearing. Yeah, wow. And I go, no, exactly, exactly the opposite. Mm. I, I want the guy who struggled to become a, a surgeon to to take the cancer out of my body. I had the, you know, I ended up having pretty much the guy invented the robot Da Vinci operating on me when I had cancer. And I want that guy. See, I'm mm -hmm. not worried about his privilege. I'm, I'm, I'm really comforted in his struggle. 
Mm. They was willing to pay the price to become one of the best surgeons in the world. Mm. Wow. And, you know, and so I think we have to be careful that we actually make an enemy of accomplishment. Yes. Mm. You know, and so that it justifies our own apathy. Yeah. Oof. <sighs> well, you know, when we, I don't know, when we have an idea or a, or a thought or something that we feel strongly about, when, when that gets challenged, mm-hmm. the easiest thing to do is to dismiss someone with something very simple as being like, oh, well, you're a white male, so your opinion doesn't matter. Sure. And, you know, I think, if anything, when I see those comments, when, when someone says that to me, it's like I just try to kind of approach it with compassion. Well, it's the same thing people used to do to my brother because he's black, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you wouldn't understand, you know, oh, he's just a black guy. He doesn't get it. It's yeah. like, well, wait a minute. That's yeah, incredibly that's... racially bigoted <laughs> right. to, to say such a thing. Yeah. And, and, and yet I noticed that all growing up, especially in the 80s, him getting dismissed all the time merely because of his skin color. Yeah. And, and how unfortunate is that? Because now his perspective isn't there. Now, granted, we, we certainly have different privileges. And what I like what, about what Erwin is saying here is, it is going to be both. It is and it isn't. Yes. Everyone has their own privilege. Sure. Everyone also has their own disadvantages. Mm-hmm. And when we turn it into a sort of oppression Olympics, <laughs> th- then, <laughs> then it does, it's not helpful for anyone. Yeah. Because the questions that Ryan and I are asking here, this has turned into our safe mm-hmm. space in a way where we can ask these, these questions in a way. Yeah. And thankfully, we have a, a really kind audience who the vast majority of them are understanding. So even if I say something or Ryan says something they disagree with, they can make that space. There's beauty in the making of the space for, for the compassion. And, and it makes room for understanding. Because I might ask a question one week, or Ryan might come with a question mm-hmm. one week, mm-hmm. And it deepens our understanding, not through more information or knowledge, but through someone else's perspective. See, with Battle Ready, which was my son's idea, because when I was uh, when I had cancer and they didn't know if I was going to live, um, he came to me and he said, "Hey, Dad, I have so many questions I didn't that you have not answered for me." God, that's and mm-hmm. and he goes, "Could we start a podcast so I could ask you those questions? We could have those conversations and leave them for other people too." Wow. And so I ended up living. So we've been doing, you know, this podcast for the past, you know, several <laughs> years. And it's called Battle Ready because that's the last chapter of the last book. I wrote the last arrow right before I had surgery, which right. I didn't know I'd come out of. And and it, what's really fascinating to me is see, I, I pretty much take, I think, a far more like left of of culture position mm-hmm. on Battle Ready. Mm. So everyone assumes I'm a liberal. Mm. and uh, But that's not it. I just feel like... Uh, I. Because I speak to so many Christians, I feel like Christians do not give liberals a sincere, thoughtful uh, engagement. So I felt like it was really important for me to give an intelligent liberal response. Man. And uh, it didn't matter to me whether I held that view or not. I felt like people needed to be treated with love and respect. Yes. And then, so then my son ended up taking the more far right position uh-huh. because he felt like in LA, if you take a right wing position, you're uh, anathema. Yeah. You're, you're blacklisted in L.A., yeah. which he hates. He hates the fact that you're not allowed to have a different position in L.A. Right. Mm-hmm. or you're off the list. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so we've created almost a scenario, you know, and, and, and at times we, we've changed each other's minds or 
or um, we actually advocated for a position that wasn't our position, mm. but, but, we, but we felt people were not hearing people on that side. That's right. You know, yeah. so everyone who voted Republican is a racist, of course. Right. <laughs> you right, know, right. everyone who voted for Biden is a socialist. We all know that. It's right, so simple, right? right? Or maybe it's more complicated than that. Right. Maybe it's three D, and we keep we yeah. keep looking oh. at people for two D and painting them, mm-hmm. and also. We, we start using these words to even left and right has become a pejorative depending on where you are in the country or what social, mm-hmm. social circles you run in. Now we use those things to dismiss other people. Mm-hmm. And anytime we're dismissing other people, that interaction completely lacks compassion. Yeah, mm. Man, it's just unfortunate that like, you know, you, you say something like, uh, oh, you know, I think, um, you know, transgender rights are important that that automatically categorizes you as being left or uh, yeah. Or, you know, a pro choice saying, Oh, well you're one of those liberals. You're one of those socialists Mm -hmm. or yeah. It's just unfortunate that like you can't have an idea without being put in that box and making it a 2d. It's very hard. I am guilty of it. You can't even have a question, right? Not even a conclusion. You you can't have a question and go, well, you know, was this the best approach? Right. Mm -hmm. Dealing with this and, you know, it does this make our society better, does give people a chance to, to become their best selves. Yeah. And, you know, so my, 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 my wife always knows I'm kind of unpredictable in the way I vote. Yes. And because mm. in, 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 I guess, my bottom line is I really believe that people should have the right to choose their life. Yeah, mm. sure. And so I pretty much vote for every law that gives people the right to live their life, even if it, it means living it in a way that's contrary to mine. Yeah, I and because every everything I've ever read about Jesus, he never he never uh, had in his mind to create a political system that forced people to conform to a particular approach toward life. It's the exact opposite. All right, and so I'm going. You know, how could I choose a different path? And and it makes me nervous when people start taking belief systems or ideologies and then politicizing it and adding God to it. Yes. Oh yeah. But I think the same is true with yeah. genius. We, we often try to prescribe genius in a way. And, and as you said, like if, you, if, if I gave you the 25 ways that Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan and handed it to Ryan or Podcast Sean or Danny or Mallory or whomever, and, and they followed those 25 steps, they still don't become Michael Jordan. There's mm-hmm. something else there that is indescribable, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, part of it has to do with a deeper understanding or, or, or whatever it is, but there, there's something about, about genius that transcends, as you said, knowledge or information or prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Those things can help us mechanically, right? They can help us unlock a door or build a bicycle, mm-hmm. but in terms of being, yeah. there's something deeper than that. I, I think some of it is just finding the freedom to uniquely express who you are as a human being. Uh, my life really shifted when I decided to stop living a life of obligation to live a life of intention. Mm. And and the more I could just remove all the obligation that I felt on my life, the the more I enjoyed life, the more free I felt, the more beauty I saw all around me. And it, it's funny when I uh, years ago, the only book I've ever written that I didn't publish is a book on consciousness. And my editor was the editor for the Dalai Lama and, and uh, when he uh, the book God and, and uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy. And he was, the, and he was a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And he's the only editor who called me up and says, hey, when I listen to your writing, I hear like a musicality. And like no other editor actually knows that I have like a syncopated musical um, narrative behind the words. Mm-hmm. Yes. And 
and so when editors would go, we're going to need to take that word out. I go, no, that sentence has to have seven words. Mm. Yes. I go, what? And mm. I go, no, no, you're saying that sentence is like, that's a, that's a five word sentence. It has to stay five words mm. or, and, and, and I think, you know, I, I don't any, I don't care about the rules anymore. I care about whether it expresses uniquely what's inside of me. Mm. And I think that the more and more we can help people come to realize that whenever you're like everyone else, you've lost a part of your uniqueness. Yeah. You, you know, and, and, and the more you're free to discover the uniqueness inside of you, I think the better the world becomes. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you believe in God, you have to believe in diversity and uniqueness because look at all the flowers. There's not just one flower. You know, they're just a dandelion, you know, or a rose. I mean, there's endless number of flowers. There's not just one color. There's an endless spectrum of colors. Not just like one frequency. There's an endless, you know, number of frequencies and, and sounds. And, and, and so if you believe in God, you have to believe that, that uniqueness is a part of the inherent nature of who God is. Mm. And so why should we ever think that humans are supposed to be the same? And a part of the problem is governments, religions, every institution knows it's easier to manage people if you can get them to give up their uniqueness, to right. give up their genius, and to conform and be standardized. It's easier to manage you if I can make you the same. Yeah. It's impossible to manage you if you actually begin to live out your uniqueness. Mm, right. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. We've got some surprise questions here from podcast, Sean. Let's move on to Melinda's question. When you first started your minimalist journey, what hiccups did you encounter and how did you address them? You know, hmm. what's fascinating about, about a question like this, I don't think Ryan and I have talked about some of the hiccups earlier. I mean, obviously the... <laughs> I still have hiccups, man. <laughs> <laughs> Not just when we started. It's because he drinks a lot. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, 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 the funny thing about... Um, the sort of origin story is like people know the the discontent that Ryan and I were going through in our 20s as we climbed the corporate ladder. We thought that was the antidote to poverty because, uh, but we still had a sort of spiritual poverty in our lives throughout our 20s. In fact, it was just amplified by consumerism, by by culture, by society, by conformity in a way. There was no genius in what we were doing, in managing a bunch of retail stores. Now, there could be. I'm not inherently against retail stores. I get that it's ironic with the whole minimalism thing. But the hiccups feel like, oh, yeah, you know what? It was like when Josh's mom died and his marriage ended. That was a hiccup. But, yeah. of course, yeah, when we started letting go of stuff, well, I've been trained to cling my whole life, cling to the past, cling mm -hmm. to sentimentality, cling to things that I thought were going to be valuable, but they're actually getting in the way. And now I noticed when I was first teaching my daughter to, to climb the monkey bars and if she would cling and she wouldn't let go to get to the next one at first, right? Because she was afraid of falling. Mm. And I get that. I think quite often we cling because we are afraid of falling. Mm. And there's some sort of deep fear there. But of course she realized that she had to let go at some point if she wanted to move on. Mm. And so I had to start letting go. I had to get some sort of momentum. It was letting go of the stuff at first, but our material possessions are just a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So yeah, I had a lot of external clutter, but I had a lot of internal clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, relationship clutter, career clutter, all of this clutter. And by beginning to let go, that was the way that I actually dealt with some of the fears that I had. Mm. Let's talk about some of the hiccups. So what about 
the white shirts that we <laughs> <laughs> were wearing all the time. Well, I think that was sort of a relic. So Ryan and yeah. I, when we first started The Minimalist, this was 11 years ago, back in 2010. Yeah. We were still in the corporate world. And so we wore suits every day, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, hey, here's a couple of guys who are about 30 years old. They're young professionals. And hey, why not? Why don't we bring this forward? Now, in retrospect, it was, it was just like, looked like we were starting a cult. Because <laughs> right. they had these button-up white shirts. I see old interviews of us. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, thankfully, it wasn't a cult because we don't have any sort of dogma or right. we're not trying to convert anyone Mm-mm. into... Uh, uh, you know, drink our Kool Aid, so to speak. Right. We're not trying to convince anyone of anything. We're simply yeah. trying to out outline a message that we've seen heal us. Mm-hmm. But we also have seen it heal thousands, you know, millions of other people on the way. Yeah. And and so um, hiccups. Were, were there any other hiccups that you really? Oh man, I mean, I st- like I said, I still struggle with hiccups. So uh, give me a, an example of a recent one. Of a recent one. Um. I have noticed, well, it's funny you mentioned drinking. Uh, I have noticed that recently I have been working out less and drinking more. Now, that doesn't mean I'm like at home getting drunk or anything, but it's more like I'll be at, uh, like I went to Peter Rollins the other day and it was, it was like just a get together. And I was like, man, I'm going to, you know, before I went to his place, I'm like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to get up. I'm going to like exercise. I'm going to get on the Peloton and like ride my little butt off and go to Peter's. And I had, we had some drinks. We shot some pool. I stayed there till 2.30 in the morning and then went home and guess who didn't get up and get on the Peloton? Right. So it's like, it's these little things where like I notice in my life where I'm like, oh, this isn't like, this isn't serving me. Like I'm not actually doing what I want to do. I'm doing, I'm being impulsive rather than being deliberate. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I'll let you know if I ever like live a 100% deliberate, perfect life. I'll let y'all know how I did it. <laughs> but, you know, I think part of humanity is, um, it's dealing with these things as they arise. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, I mean, there's certainly things like I let go of, like I kind of look back on, I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have let, you know, let go of that. But I don't hang on to that feeling of regret as much as it is a symptom of something where I can use that to move forward in a more deliberate way in the future. Erwin, you, you strike me as someone who doesn't cling to anything. Um, <laughs> how did we get here? Oh, um, you know, I, I just think that you can't, you can't make your decisions based on what you think other people want you to do. Right. Yeah. You, you know, and it's, it, I've always had this like odd tension because I think that there are things that I really enjoy in life, but I, I, I'm, I gather experiences more than anything. Like I'm addicted to, I am addicted to experiences. You know, mm. I mean, I've been to 60 different countries around the world at mm. least. You know, and wow. every time I can walk a new city, and you know, so um, I have a lot of things people just can't see them. Mm. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, tweet that <laughs> podcast, John. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting though. I think like that is where I don't know. There's a certain standard I, you know, I kind of look in the mirror and, and hold myself to. It's like our is what I'm doing, like, is it externally visible to others? And it's not like hiding as much as it, like, how much is it actually affecting my life? And I mean, that's, I mean, that's something I always struggle with too. Like there's all this internal stuff and you're like, wait, is it, is this visible from other people? Yeah. I found even things I've really wanted about two years into it. I'm like, did I really want this? And and I think the longer you live, you realize everything that, uh, the attaining of it seems really exciting. It, the attaining of it is so much more exciting than the actual getting of it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the process of it. And, and so I just realized that I always have to have things I work for. Right. 
you know, and and a huge part of her, my wife and I, even when I first started writing books, I mean, I wouldn't, have, I don't know if I would have written a book if we hadn't have committed to give $30,000 away. Mm. And, but we were making about 30,000 a year. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I had a publisher call me up and say, hey, can you take that lecture and turn it into a book? And I said, send me a contract. They offered me 25,000. And uh, that was how much I got for my first book. And I, mm. and when the check came, my kids were like, they never seen that much money in their whole lives. And, and I said, hey, we're giving all that away, mm. you know? And, and they're like, why, why? We don't really have a lot, you mm. know? And, Cause they were really small. And, and I realized, oh, if I can create great ambition for my life of things I want to do in terms of good for others. It'll actually create great uh, generative capacity in me. Mm, yes. And, and so I, I've always been more generative when I've been more generous. Mm, and, uh, and I think those things are really interconnected. So, yeah. you know, my wife's been building a school in Malawi and, you know, and has been putting together about a million dollars for it. And it's just, wow. you know, and, and that, that's been during the quarantine. Mm. And she's already built two different phases, and you know she'll wake up and go. So can we do phase three? You know, I go not not today. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> today we're just gonna get coffee, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and survive. But the moment she has another project, it makes us more generative. Yes, it, it, it's a yeah. different kind of ambition. It's not an ambition that's all about me. Yeah, it's an ambition that's about we. Yeah, yeah. but I have to be fair. I have everything I want. Yes, you know, so it's not like I'm I'm suffering. I have everything I want. Well, that's easy know? to do when you want less, meaning less. Oh, you can a, always want more. Right, right. right. <laughs> and so, so I, yeah. I it, it took me a while to figure out, like especially when we were climbing the corporate ladder. Oh, I want more, more, more. As soon as I get it, of course, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be complete. It's right I around it. the corner. It's just right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. and it never is around oh. the corner until you realize, like, oh yeah, I already have everything I want. <laughs> Makes me think of like when I was hiking uh, the Smoky Mountains, uh, the Appalachian Trail, like there's this particular climb that we had to do. And it's like every time I saw a corner, I'm like, oh, that's going to be the top. I'm like, nope, it was just another long path up the side of the mountain. Mm. Now, obviously, eventually you get to the top, but it just makes me feel like it's just a mountain you're climbing that never ends when you chase those things. I think yes. one of the important things that you guys are really driving people toward is that um, wealth and freedom are not the same thing. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, and, and power and freedom yeah. are not either. Yeah, and well, whatever that ambition is, you know, I, I mean, I do think some people are like driven for fame, or some people are driven for power, some people are driven for wealth, and they, they haven't even identified really what is driving them. Mm. That's right. You know, but in the end, um, freedom is so much better. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you can choose to live the life you want every day, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful life. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and it looks different for each person. Yeah. You know, I, I do think that's why a lot of people have left L.A. during COVID. That's right. You know, they were coming here for, you know, with great ambitions to be famous or to, you know, succeed in the movie industry. And 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 then when you lost everything mm. and that wasn't even there, a lot of people started reevaluating their lives and going, what, what do I really want? Yeah. Yes. You know? And uh, I think it's Jeff Daniels, my wife was telling me, has a house on a lake in Michigan and he lives there. Because he always thought that his career would come to an end. So he might as well live where he would have to go back to. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, and I thought, what a, a brilliant thing yeah. that he ended up building a life that he wanted while he was doing a work that he didn't know was going to sustain him. going to do, yeah. yes. Most of us would, if we dreamed of a house on Lake Michigan, would spend our whole life living in Hollywood. And then when we're 70, move to Lake Michigan. 
right? Mm. Yeah. yeah, waiting for it as though it is some distant thing that is semi unattainable. And what you're talking about here, and I love the this imagery. We're talking about reevaluating our ambitions. Mm-hmm. Because many of our ambitions, they're mimetic ambitions. Oh, you know what? You get the thing, you're like, wow. And it could be a literal thing, like a, but it could be a job. And it's a job you've always wanted, and then you get it, and you realize, this happened to me in the corporate world. I got mm-hmm. promoted to director of operations, and I was in charge of all the, and I'm like, oh, I don't like this as much as my last job. I remember it when he got the promotion, uh, the offer for the promotion. Uh-huh. And he was kind of debating, because he knew how much work was involved with this. Mm-hmm. And he was going to think on it. And uh, eventually we had a conversation. I'm like, are you going to take it or not? And he was like, it would be career suicide if I didn't. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which, mean, which eventually, you know, a few years later, I committed you career committed suicide. Career su- You're like, you know that career suicide idea? Not, that's not too bad. Yeah. yeah. I want to kill the career, not myself. The career <laughs> right. is killing me. Right. Yeah, exactly. we got a few oh, more man. questions here. Wait, one from... One, one quick question. I'm just curious. Uh, who did you donate the 25000 bucks to? I'm oh, that curious. was to Mosaic. Oh, okay. okay. All right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Awesome. And. But it was before I was, I wasn't the pastor. It was before it was Mosaic. It was another church that the church came out of, and gotcha. And they were doing a project, and so I, we wanted to give money to help them with their project. Cool. So it was before I was really, you know, awesome. involved. That's yeah. other than just a tender. Super inspiring. Super inspiring. We go into uh, Marianne. All right. How do we best explain the benefits of minimalism to a maximalist? How do you change a maximalist mind? <laughs> For example, with the holidays quickly approaching, those of us who practice minimalism are about to be overwhelmed by devotees of maximalism and decorating, gifting, and celebrating. Well, let's let's talk about this. So I, I, I actually think there are two different spectrums here. The, I wouldn't say minimalist and maximalist. I actually think they're on the same spectrum of yeah. intentionality. Mm-hmm. Then there is a unintentionality spectrum we see ryan and i recently have done a couple episodes we did an episode on hoarding and talked about the five stages of hoarding and then we did episode 300 on spartanism which is the 300 spartans (laughs) but but it's really obsessive compulsive decluttering people who can't stop letting go and in fact it tends to affect their careers their relationships they they shun everyone after they've shunned everything it's completely unintentional on both sides. Hoarders can't stop letting or can't stop holding on. Spartanists can't stop letting go. A minimalist and a maximalist can both be intentional. I, I think about someone like Axel Vavort, who is a designer and he's designed furniture and interior design. I often think of him as a bit of a maximalist with minimalist tendencies he has a lot of artifacts a lot of things around the spaces that he decorates but it's all intentional Mm. he he finds um it's almost as though he finds the object that belongs in the space and there's an intentionality behind that for me it might feel a bit cluttered if it was for me and so i don't think with with Marianne, I don't think we're actually talking about maximalists. I think what we're talking about are people with hoarding tendencies, and that's not pejorative. We're all hoarders to some extent. Yeah, Ryan and I identified that of the five stages of hoarding, your average person in the Western world is at least a stage two hoarder, sometimes a stage three hoarder. The people we see on the TV, on the show, hoarders, that's like stage five, right? <laughs> right. You know, that's yeah, you can't walk around their house, sort of thing. But that doesn't mean. But by the way, they didn't get there overnight. We all have this sort of tendency to hold on to things that are no longer serving us. Mm-hmm. And so I think what Marianne is actually saying here is, hey, I've got some people in my life who have different preferences from me. Right. And they want to give me things because they think it's going to add value to my life, mm-hmm. even though it's actually going to get in the way 
of me living my life. Yeah. How do you well, talk to someone like this, Erwin? Well, you wouldn't expect a person who is a maximalist, as you call it, mm-hmm. to change you if you're a minimalist. Mm. Oh, yes. So why would you expect that you as a minimalist should change the person who's a maximalist? Yeah, that's maybe, right. Maybe part of it is realizing that you're not maybe even capable of matching their gift. Ooh, yeah. And so some of it is ego. Could be, yeah. And you just have to like, sometimes the most difficult thing in the world is to receive a gift that you're not able to compensate mm. and, and give an equal gift in return. And realizing maybe a person is like genuinely like well-motivated yeah. They want to give you a gift because they love you. Mm-hmm. Right. And they don't really expect an equal gift in return. Mm-hmm. It's just society has taught you that you have to give that compensating gift. I'm going to say this because I am a person who loves giving gifts. But I, I, I don't give that gift going, oh, what am I going to get in return? Mm-hmm. Right. There's no expectation. Yeah. It, I'm, I actually have a visceral, physical re, uh, experience when I give a gift that's the right gift. Mm. And it's just fun. I just love doing it. Yeah. And you know, I would tra- when I would travel and come home, sometimes I'd bring a gift to all, all my family, but sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes yeah. I only bring a gift to my son or only to my daughter or only to my wife, and they go, "Hey, where's my gift?" Mm. Is that you know, I didn't see anything that really belonged to you. Mm. Like, and when I saw when I see something, I want to be able to be free to say that, that Mariah really needs that, mm. and but not have to buy a gift for Aaron and Kim that was just. Make it even gift. Obligation. Yeah, and the obligation. And, and the same thing with me is like, I love receiving gifts, but not just any gift. I love it when someone's thoughtful. Yes. When someone actually thinks about, oh, this is something that really matches him. This is, mm. It's almost as if that is, belongs to me already. Mm. And, and so I would say, you know, don't worry about changing other people. And, and it's challenging, I think, in our family, you know, and with gifts and everything, because Aaron would always be the one going, hey, let's just not go over the top. Yeah, you, you know, and I think it's hard not to go over the top in my family because I'm over the top in giving, and so it makes everyone else obligated, mm. you know, to feel like they have to match it. And so I say we have that struggle, mm. and I try to say, mm. hey, we don't all have to match that, right? You, you know, we're one. I just make more money than you, mm. <laughs> you know? and, and two, I receive more joy in it, you mm. know, and and so maybe it's you know you, you're friends with that maximalist, so there must be something about them you love. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. Like, focus on what you love about that person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe just having an honest conversation going, dude, when you give me a gift like this, I just feel so, I feel bad about myself. I can't match that mm. gift. And, and so maybe you just need to have an honest conversation saying, you're trying to bring me joy, but it's not bringing me joy. It's actually putting pressure on me. Yeah. And, and, no, and I almost guarantee you they don't want to diminish your joy. They're trying to accentuate your course, joy. Yeah. They just don't know that they're affecting you that way. That's a tough conversation, but totally worth having with your maximalist friends. You know, there might be some beauty that you can see in the maximalist maximalist behavior. Like uh, two things that come to mind is, you know, the Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. I don't personally have Christmas lights. I don't do it up like that, but I really enjoy like (laughs) seeing when people do up the Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. You go down like Rodeo Drive and it's just, it's gorgeous. And I can appreciate the beauty in what, you know, someone has taken that. They've made it a piece of art. Uh, that doesn't mean that I have to go home and now try to do my best job with Christmas lights. So I think there's a way to, you know, remove ourselves from the maximalist environment, but still appreciate the beauty and what's going on. The other thing I, I thought of was when we first um, went down the, this path of minimalism and started the minimalists.com, I was uh, dating a woman whose mother, she would put out, I think I counted like 
I want to say like 300 or maybe it was even like 500 Santas during Christmas. <laughs> I just like went out of my way. I'm like, she has so many Santas. I'm going to count how many there are. And, you know, again, I was like, I forget. It was three to 500. And they weren't, it wasn't gaudy though. Like the way that she did it, it was so intentional. And like, it was something <laughs> that she really like put her heart into, like to create this atmosphere for, you know, her, her, her kids and her grandkids and her husband and people that would come over and it, it did create a pretty cool atmosphere. So, you know, I never looked at those Santas and thought, what a maximalist. I can't believe her. <laughs> now, I would look in the mirror and think that about myself, but I can recognize that that's just a projection if I did, you know, say that about her. Right. But yeah, being able to see the beauty in it, um, it just helped me accept her for who she was rather than like being judgy and feeling like I had to change them. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of Mother's Day. I think I might have shared with you that during Mother's Day, you know, it was middle of COVID quarantine, my wife um, bought masses bouquets of roses and then we live on a corner so she and it has a little bit of a hill so she lined well along with me but i only did it under command you know <laughs> lined all the street with roses mm. and just put up this beautiful sign take them to your mother mm. wow and so all day long people were just driving up to our house and and coming and taking roses and i remember one person can, can i have one for my my grandmother and you know my mother and i go no it takes me and all day long she just kept replacing the roses and mm. like there there's a way of being a maximalist who's actually incredibly generous yeah. and and then and yet had still a very minimal kind of feel to it because it was just one rose yes mm. you know and, and it's amazing watching cars come by and people would come back and i, thought, I know that person can't afford a rose there was just something visceral about seeing a rose on the side of the road that that's is right. a gift that you can take because there's a story behind it. And I think sometimes we're just not very, we, we just need to be more creative in the way, if we're givers and, we, and you want to make a contribution to the world, just be super creative about how you can do that. Yeah. Not just for yourself, but for other people. Mm. Yeah. We got one more question here from Heather. Actually, you know, we got one, we got two more questions. Let's do Heather's question, then we'll do uh, Lana's question to, to finish things out. Cool. Uh, Heather's question. How do we maintain our focus, momentum, and motivation throughout the minimalism cycle? I keep thinking the purge will end, but somehow new things always find their way into our space, especially new gifts. Well, we talked about the gift thing already a moment ago in, in this episode, but let's uh let's go a little bit deeper on the gift side of things so we have two rules in our book love people use things we have the minimalist gift giving rule mm -hmm. and then we have the gift getting rule which is a weird thing to think about as a minimalist you have a gift getting rule <laughs> and really these are boundaries we set up because if you're unhappy with the gifts that you get right now quite often that has that has to do with the fact that you haven't communicated what you actually do want what would add value to my life mm -hmm. people want to give you gifts why because not because gift giving is a love language or whatever they want to add value to your life. Mm -hmm. And they think one way they can do that is through a gift. Well, show them how to be more intentional with the gifts. Maybe it's donating money to your favorite charity. Maybe it's purchasing consumables for you, a great bag of coffee or a bottle of wine or a prepared meal mm -hmm. or an experience together, concert tickets, something like that. You know, these things are gifts, but they're gifts that you would enjoy getting. It's mm. different from, uh, you know, Ryan bought me another pair of cufflinks and now I don't even have shirts that take cufflinks, but he felt obligated to give me something. Yeah. And now he's not going to be happy because he gave me something I don't want. Now I feel compelled to take the gift and I'm not going to be happy with it because there's nothing I can do with it. Well, it's really 
a big portion of that is it's my problem. I didn't do a good enough job setting the expectation beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love how she refers to minimalism as a cycle because it, <laughs> it is a cycle. I mean, you know, the things that we have today may not add value tomorrow. I think the psychological dynamic when you receive a gift that you don't want is that you feel the person doesn't know you. Ooh. Ooh. And so I think I think the the deep like psychological need is to be known. Yeah. And and understood, yeah. Yeah, to be understood. And so when you receive a gift that doesn't match you and you realize, "Oh, this person doesn't really know me." Mm. And so I would say that there's a longer journey of making sure that you have authentic relationships and friendships where the people in your life who are giving you gifts actually do know you as a person. Wow. That's so true because mm. I tell you, my gift-getting experience is so much better now a dozen years into minimalism. But it's also because I've surrounded myself with people who better understand me, my preferences, my desires, and and also just um, what's going to serve me. Mm-hmm. And, and they avoid just buying something out of obligation. Mm-hmm. Heaping trinkets upon me, they know, is actually going to bring the opposite of what they want. It's going to make me a little anxious, a little yeah. discontent. But if you understand the people in your life and the people in your life understand you, then by that, by the very nature of that, your gift-giving experience will improve along the way. Mm. One more question here from Lana. How is your message similar to or different from Marie Kondo and looking for the joy and beauty in the things you own? So let's talk about this. I don't think our I don't think we're appreciably different from Marie Kondo. Although I think the big difference here is what, how people interpret the messages. Yes. And so people often hear about Marie Kondo and they think, oh, it's just about decluttering my closet. I don't think she would say that, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of people see, and, and now I get, you know, she's selling a bunch of things at the container store or whatever. And, and while I personally dislike that, I think the container store is part of the problem. It allows us yeah. to hide all the, the clutter <laughs> in very neat looking bins and it doesn't al- allow us to address the problem. But if we set that aside, it, Marie Kondo does understand getting to the why behind yeah. simplifying, right? But people see it and they're like, oh, I see how to fold my shirts better and that's going to fix my life. Yeah. Well, if you think folding your shirts better is going to fix everything for you, then you've set yourself up with an unfortunate expectation. And, and you're going to fold all the shirts repeatedly. It's going to be perfect, but it's not going to change anything in your life. It's going to make things a little bit tidier, a little bit more organized. Mm. But organizing is actually the problem. Mm. Organizing our stuff is just taking a bunch of things that are making us miserable. They're covering up our happiness, our joy, our genius. And they are getting us to a place where, okay, I can hide this for a while. But it still covers up all of the things that make life beautiful. Of course, the easiest way to organize your home or your stuff is to get rid of most of it. Get rid of those things that aren't serving a purpose. Don't put them in a container store container. That just that that's punting the problem yeah. to next year. Just covering it up. Yeah. Hmm. Erwin, so you know Marie Kondo. I don't. Oh, you don't. Oh, I don't. interesting. The life yeah. changing magic of tidy. I don't know. That's not the name of the book, but it's something like that. That's exactly it. Oh, the life changing magic of tidying up. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um. Okay, well, then never mind. I was going to see what he saw the differences were, but if he doesn't know who she is... I, no, first, I, I just think it's interesting that someone would ask you what's the difference as if, or 
almost like it feels like, why do you exist if she exists? Ah, uh, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. And I'm going, why does Coldplay exist when you two exist? Why, mm. you know, why did the Rolling Stones exist when the Beatles existed? Mm. If something is of value, you want more expressions of it, not less. Right. Yeah. You know, so my, my question was, why not? Like, why does there have to be, uh, I'm, there's going to be differences, right? Sure. Yeah, because to me, the difference with you is that it's your story. It's your journey. You're, you're, you're really not um, philosophers of minimalism. Mm. You are, you are um, practitioners of minimalism. Sure. And you're taking people into the story of your life and then how it's changed you. And then you're helping other people have their own story. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, perfect. I'm a perfect example. I haven't been touched by her, but I have been touched by you. Mm. And, and I'm sure there are people that have been touched by her that maybe have not yet even heard about you guys as the minimalists. And mm. um, when something matters, there should be multiple frequencies and multiple narratives getting the message out. Yeah, I love that. So the end result is, you know, maybe it's the same, but yeah, it's a different narrative. It's a different path to to that that result. And the question is, what resonates with you, right? Yeah. Ryan and I often talk about the why. How might your life be better with less? Sounds like a how-to question, but it's a it's a why question disguised as a how-to yeah. question. So when we ask that question, it's really about understanding why or the benefits of simplifying because if you're just folding the shirts you're just cleaning out the walk-in closet but you don't know why you're doing that you're just going to the container store and organizing yes you will feel a weight lifted mm -hmm. but you won't experience lasting contentment by simply tidying up mm -hmm. you have to understand why you're doing it what are those benefits for you maybe they're financial maybe mm -hmm. they're spiritual Maybe they uh, allow you to improve your career or your creativity. Mm. Maybe they just give you a, a, a house that is calmer for you, and that brings out the best version of you. Maybe it's more peace and tranquility. Maybe it's happiness. What are the benefits of simplifying for you? And then, of course, the how-to side of things, that tends to take care of itself. Well, you talked earlier about that recipe for Michael Jordan. Like, Could you imagine if like, I actually did look at the recipe that Michael Jordan used. And my expectation was I'm going to become, how, how disappointed, I would probably be depressed yes. if I followed all that, because now I'm not special, I'm not, uh, you know, whatever it is, like I'm going to feel inadequate. And it's the same thing with the, 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 the life-changing magic of tidying up. If you follow Marie Kondo's exact recipe, mm -hmm. yeah, you may have a less uh, cluttered home, you might be a little bit more organized, but you're not going to be Marie Kondo. If you follow Josh and I's recipe, you're not going to be Josh and I. Uh, but what's really cool about uh, Marie Kondo and us, there are different recipes, there are different paths. Even between Josh and I, there are different recipes. Mm -hmm. And you get to pick and choose your own ingredients and make your make your own delicious minimalism recipe. <laughs> That's beautiful. Erwin, I want to acknowledge you today. You've got this yeah, new man. book out. It's called The Genius of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Thegeniusof.com is where folks can go. Should we send them anywhere else? Well, you know, uh, the Genius of Podcast has been really fun. And yes. you were just on it. That's right. And you, and we're releasing that in a couple of uh, days, maybe. Okay. And uh, so I'm excited about that. I have a lot of interesting people on it. Uh, Angel Manuel Davis and um, Ed Milet, extreme people. You know, John Gordon is a, a Buddhist Jewish energy coach who has had a transformation in his life, speaks to major league sports all over the nation. And and, and so I've just been taking friends. Really, it's just interviewing friends who have a unique genius in their life and express it in a really beautiful way, and it's been a lot of fun. Mm. So I've just say uh, pick up the book, The Genius of Jesus, and check out the podcast, The, uh, the Genius of 
And, uh, and then if you want to go old school, pick up Battle Ready and listen to me and Aaron talk about all these issues in life mm. and figure our way through it. Oh, mm. man. Yeah, Thank man. you so much for being here today. Hey, it's You're so awesome, good to be Irwin. with you guys. Thank you guys so we much. We love you, Erwin. Yeah, I love you too. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Thank you, patrons. The Minimalists. <laughs>